World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. We've got another good one for you. We were talking about one of our favorite types of topics. Uh, Jane, who are we speaking to and what oh, are we talking about? Oh, James, I couldn't be more excited if, um, I don't know, there's no, I don't know if there's anyone I'd want to be more excited with. So we are speaking to the chair of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School, uh, Richard Shell, And we're going to be talking all about... Uh, business ethics and ethical behavior uh, in the workplace. Super, super topical, really interesting. Can't wait to have a chat. Here we go. So here we are in today's podcast, and, and we're really excited to be having a, a fantastic guest with us. We've got Richard Sell here today, who's the chair of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's done a lot of interesting work there. He's written multiple books. Uh, his fifth book has just been published, which is The Conscience Code. And we're going to be speaking to him today about that. But we're also going to be exploring a little bit more broadly his understanding and interpretation of some of the ethical challenges that individuals face in the modern workplaces um, that, that people are in at the minute. And also explore a little bit about what we might be able to do to challenge and, and face into some of those behaviors that go against our core values when we're in those workplaces. So, um, Richard, before we get into that topic a bit more, would you be able to introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself and your background to the audience? Sure. Thank you, James. Uh, and well, thank you very much for having me on. The um, uh, I, I'm a non-traditional academic. I uh, came to the Wharton School as a junior member of the faculty when I was 37. So uh, I had been a lawyer before that. Uh, I had actually been a conscientious objector to the war in Vietnam before that, and a social worker. I had about five different careers, I guess. And uh, so as a person who, uh, joining the faculty, uh, I worked my way up to the ranks to being chair. And then also, uh, I think interestingly, from my career standpoint, uh, was the leader of a major redesign effort at the Wharton School to create a brand new MBA program and MBA curriculum. So uh, the course, uh, the responsibility course on which the Conscience Code is based, uh, actually, of course, I helped to create as a, as a designer and then have taught for about 10 years. And it's a, a professional responsibility course for MBA students. Brilliant. That's helpful. And and I, I love your varied background as well. I think it gives so many people um, hope to see that variety and, and that sort of funneling in on a path that, that fits with that, you know, discovering what's good for you within your career. I, I think it, it's um, I, I think it's good to see that that breadth of experience leading into this and, and hopefully it's provided lots of insight for this uh, ethical work as well. Um, if we start off, uh, I was just curious, you know, you said you've rewritten this program on the responsible business side of things as part of the MBA. I guess, why do you, why do you think this is an important subject now? What, what's brought this area into your focus and, and what have you gotten out of uh, starting to, to teach that course or having taught that course for the last 10 years, I should say? Sure. Um, I think uh, business education is excellent at providing people with tools uh, whether they're management tools, goal setting, or feedback, or all the different things that people need to do, both hard and soft skills. 
uh, that are, uh, you know, kind of how to do things, but it's lacking a bit in the what's the important thing to do category and what kind of person should you be and how do you bring your own personal story and self-awareness to the work you do in the organization. I think the the general um, topic that subsumes most of that is leadership. Uh, and so the course in responsibility and I think the whole area of ethical practice um, falls under the leadership category. Uh, I had a, a guy named Yancey Strickler wrote a blurb for the Conscience Code. He's the uh, co-founder of Kickstarter. Uh, it's a uh, well-known website, uh, sort of a crowdsource funding site. And he said, um, trying to run an organization these days uh, without paying attention to your conscience is like trying to fly a plane without wings. And that's a pretty good analogy. It, it's the kind of thing that uh, is you have to uh, be aware of almost all the time because you never know when your values are going to be challenged and then have a sense of yourself. It's really a, a personal identity question more than anything else as to what is non-negotiable for you when a values challenge comes up. So I think it's an essential aspect of leadership. And I think in the most recent time period, it's been very much to the front as uh, society has undergone so many uh, sort of cataclysmic value challenges, polarization, uh, the rise of the Me Too movement for uh, women's rights, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement for social justice, um, as different groups have suddenly um, come to their own realizations that they have uh, to stand up for themselves and to make sure that their voices are heard. So, um, so this topic um, really feeds right into that and has been much more top of mind, I think, in the last decade than it was the decade before that. Yeah, and and in the even in the past few months, it's um it's early June, twenty twenty one at the minute, and and even recently we've seen business leaders in the U.S. doing things like uh, relocating due to uh, interpretations of voter suppression and things like that. So it feels like business leaders are taking more ownership or, or adopting more of a willingness to face into some of those potentially ethical issues. Do you get that sense that there's more sort of courage and ownership in, in those demands from business leaders at the minute? I do. And I think the uh, I've always said the, uh, the strength of your values is the price you're willing to pay for them. And uh, we're seeing business leaders of some very large organizations now being uh, willing to lead their organizations by paying a price. It, some of these judgments that firms are making uh, on behalf of uh, causes that are basically social justice causes are not popular with all of their shareholders or all of their customers. And uh, on the other hand, I think they're, we're now in a position where business leaders have to make a choice. They can't just stay on the sidelines. Uh, it just is incredible to stay on the sidelines and say, well, we just sell Coke. You know, we have nothing to say about human rights or nothing to say about uh, dishonesty or corruption. Uh, and uh, so in the modern, I think it's partly transparent world that we live in, where businesses really are citizens of their societies, not just providers of goods and services, uh, it, it behooves the people who lead them to understand what their values are personally, uh, what their duties are as leaders. And then I think it's there's a line. You don't want to simply, uh, you know, 
be imposing values on your employees or your shareholders that are unique and idiosyncratic to you. But I think when you're resonating with the society you're in, it's um, it's just vitally important that people know that uh, you have a conscience. And I guess sort of drilling into that, I, I've got a, an interest in responsible business, obviously. And one of the, the things that we've seen over the past couple of years is things like, um, you know, Larry Fink saying that there, uh, BlackRock will only invest where there are, um, you know, environmental plans and things like that, or the business roundtable in the U.S. promoting responsibility in business more broadly and saying potentially there's a, a need to look beyond the, the shareholder. Now, one of the, the sort of challenges that's levied against that in other areas is this la- uh, challenge of sort of greenwashing uh, it, it, towards organizations. What's your sense about this sort of... Uh, ethical washing of businesses. How much do you think what we're seeing is this sort of washing? And, and how much do you see is, is a real change in, in um, intention by the leadership? That's a great question. Um, you know, we talk a lot about greenwashing in, in, uh, in, in our business program. Uh, it's, a, a, it's a phenomenon that you often see in the wake of some sort of scandal or environmental disaster. And the next thing that comes up is the firm adopts a code of conduct and a uh, commitment to uh, whatever the thing is that they got wrong before, and they're going to get it right now. I I think it's I think the the measure that this is anecdotal. I don't have research on this, but the measure for me is uh, when a firm is actually in a pretty good place and takes actions that express uh, values in support of. Uh, uh, certain causes, whether they're social justice causes or environmental causes, I tend to treat those with more credibility than the ones that are coming out of a major scandal and then suddenly, uh, you know, become converts to the cause, uh, whatever it is. Because people don't change uh, that fast, and I, I think companies change a lot slower than that. So I, I think it's fine if people. Uh, you know, come up with a new statement of intention or goals. But I think accountability um, is, we want to impose even more accountability on firms that are converts uh, to causes that they're recent violators of than we do to firms that are in strong positions and, um, and you see them taking leadership roles on these values. Yeah, that's a nice way to look at it. Uh, you know, where under duress change is made, it's, it's, I guess, a bit less credible, isn't it, than, than if it's leading from the front and leading from the front foot. I've heard um, some great stories recently about organizations making changes when they are in that good position, and, and that's really heartening to, to hear. Um, so with that, it feels like when we're thinking about organizational leadership, there is intention out there to adopt a more responsible approach, to, to lead in, a, in that front foot kind of way, in an ethical way. However, I'm fairly sure that internally, and based on my own experience anecdotally as well, I've seen this, that there are ethical challenges or or, uh, moments of conflict with our core values that are faced all across the the gamut of work um, in people's individual lives. As you've been teaching your your program, have you come across any specific examples or or generic examples of the types of conflicts that people are, are facing in the workplace at the moment? Yeah, I mean, up to now we've really been talking about the sort of tip of the iceberg. These are the, the you know, major corporate, large corporations doing big things and taking large stands. And actually, my my approach to this whole subject is a much more day to day and much more pay attention to where you are uh, um, in your office and to who you are in your office and to uh, just 
you know, be able and willing to stand up when you see your values challenged. And I kind of have this laid out in sort of three levels. Uh, and it's the way I teach it. Uh, to be a responsible business person, I think, requires you to do things right, to do the right thing, and to be the right kind of person. Uh, and it's actually, you know, doing things right, although it sounds like it's really just an execution problem, you know, like, you know, make sure that we, you know, paint the, 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 the whole piece of furniture and not just part of it. It often comes that the standard of excellence that you want to um, be known for, that the firm has made a commitment to for its customers, um, that that is a do the right thing when someone's trying to cut corners. Uh, and turn out a sloppy product or put some in incomplete data in a report that someone's paid for uh, or to um, uh, fudge on a deadline that was actually a commitment and now they're going to try to sort of obscure the fact that it was not met. So, so, so these lines blur a little bit. And I think a standard of excellence is a value in the same way that a standard of honesty is. Uh, and all of that comes from a commitment to being uh, what I think of as the right kind of person. And the right kind of person, I try to characterize as a person of conscience. Uh, a person of conscience is someone who has their values front and center. Um, they are uh, aware of the fact that when those values are challenged, that it's sort of unthinkable not to express their objection, but how to do it, to do it effectively, to use a problem-solving approach to doing it. Uh, not just a self-righteous approach or a kind of holier-than-thou approach, uh, is really what I'm trying to write about in the book. My students have brought just, you know, an infinite variety, everything from sexual harassment where a client was, you know, trying to uh, hit on uh, a young associate uh, at a consulting firm to a private equity company that was backdating documents uh, but uh, express the thought to this young employee that everybody does it, so there's nothing really wrong with it, uh, to cheating on expense accounts, uh, and uh, and again, a lot of rationalizations supporting these everyday uh, cutting of ethical corners. Everybody does it just this once. Uh, nobody will notice. Uh, a uh, <coughs> fascinating uh, quick story of a uh, of a student told told just a month ago in my class that one of their first jobs out of college was in a call center for a, 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 a consumer uh, company and they made calls on behalf of this uh, client and they would put um, a whiteboard in in this call center and if you didn't make the right number of calls your name went up on the board in red. And this was a new, this new employee kind of found their name up on this board in red, uh, within a week or so. And their, their cellmate in this call center, the person in the next cubicle saw them at lunch and said, you know, I can help you get your name off the red board. Uh, and the, the student said, well, what do I have to do? And they said, well, there are a bunch of us in the office and we figured out that the monitoring system for our quotas, uh, can be defeated if we just call each other. And hold the line for a minute, uh, and then it counts as a completed call. And so, so he said, "Okay." So, so this whole call center had become a giant conspiracy to defeat the bosses who put these unreasonable demands on, and then shame people for not making them. This is a classic toxic work environment, and and these employees had gathered together to defeat it uh, by simply calling each other. It was, they finally figured out that something was going on by, cause no one 
was buying the product and they, they did a little audit and figured out where the phone numbers were. A couple of people got fired, but a lot of people wanted to leave the job anyway. So, uh, but that's the kind of thing that actually is more pervasive in the workplace than uh, the newspapers would tell you. It's certainly not a major corporate scandal in the same way that Theranos is uh, in the United States, you know, medical device company that is touting products that don't work to do blood testing. Uh, but they're just the everyday challenges that come up uh, at work. And I think if you approach them as, I'm a person of conscience, what would a person of conscience do in this situation? The answers tend to be a lot more obvious than if you say, uh, is this a major scandal? Do I have a duty to blow the whistle? Which tends to frame it in a way that is easier to escape responsibility for. Yeah, that's some great stuff. And I, I really liked that story of a call center. Just, it's just a sort of encapsulation of a, of a sort of microcosm of a conflict between unreasonable demands and inventive ways to, to game the system and get around them. Um, and as you were speaking there, you know, it really brought to life to me, I guess, the, the mundanity and, and the sort of de minimis small things that are the boundaries at which these unethical behaviors or conscience challenging behaviors take place. And, and, and it's good to, to see that scalarness and to see that perhaps where something is less large scale, um, but it's still something that challenges our set of values, but, but it's maybe at those levels where individuals can be more empowered to, to take some action and, and, you know, clean up some of this corporate culture around the edges, which, which maybe sets the, the trend. Um, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I think people, um, they are what they do. That That's sort of a definition that I like to use. Uh, uh, we Most of us think of ourselves as our intentions, but I think if you're holding yourself accountable, you are what you do. And so when you're acting on your values, you're a person of conscience, uh, even in a small matter. And it's in the small matters, I mean, anyone who's a parent knows that uh, when a child lies, you don't just let it pass. You try to correct the child so that they acquire the habit of telling the truth. And the same is true of our own behavior. Uh, you'll gain more confidence, acquire better habits, uh, be proud of yourself, and have, have less regrets in a given day when you're able to effectively express yourself when you feel uncomfortable about what's going on around you. Then you will if you just sort of go, well, it's, you know, just another day and see if I can keep my head down, get home. Uh, because after doing that a couple of times, then you become kind of inured to uh, the next violation. And the next violation may be a little bigger, but now you've got this habit of just turning the other way. And it gets harder and harder to speak up when, the, when there's something, you know, really critical and vital and moral. Uh, if you haven't had any tendency to speak up when the matters were more retail. Yeah, it sort of erodes your ability to face into that. And, and you, to some extent, become complicit. It, it's that, that winding journey down the path where, you know, step by step, you're moving in that direction. And suddenly you don't have a footing from which to, to push back again. Exactly, exactly. Um, do, you, do you feel that there is more of a conscientious or interest in ethics uh, amongst the younger generation of workers at the minute? I know, I mean, clearly you were a conscientious objector, so you've got um, strong throughs, strong views throughout the back of, of your career. But but do you see changes? Do you see an increase in sort of morality or values or ethical approaches within the, the younger cohort of people in your courses? I, 
I do. I do. Um, not clear to exactly why. Um, I think, you know, generations are characterized by a lot of social forces. And what becomes the uh, the important defining issues of a generation, um, you know, really uh, has something to do with history and, and the moment. But I think this generation has been, um, uh, you know, moving through its young adulthood in the midst of a swirling set of important, uh, almost uh, planet-affecting uh, values, and the environment is the one that I think um, sort of leads the story because I think they look at their own lives and think, well, will, will we have a planet for our children uh, to enjoy? And and it doesn't take long to move from environmental concerns to social justice concerns because these environmental matters hit much more heavily on communities of color and uh, people living in more challenged poverty experiences, developing countries, and so so it it's it's a pretty easy set of steps to take where you suddenly become a global citizen, and those values become really important at a macro level. But but I think what what I see in my classrooms is these values of honesty, of compassion, of dignity, uh, are the kind of everyday concern that has come along with uh, the sexual revolution and Me Too and the sort of dignity of all when it comes to uh, sexuality, uh, sexual identity. These are things that these young people have been growing up with from the, you know, pr practically from the cribs. And whereas in my generation, uh, it was more war and peace and uh, civil rights in its earlier edition, I think the current edition, the current generation is much more attuned to the day-to-day -day, uh, insults, uh, microaggressions that people uh, endure just from um, the casual disregard for uh, who they are, what they stand for, and what, uh, what their moral duties are to of these larger causes, uh, and and I, it upsets them. And I, I think they I think they actually have a sense also that they have options. And um, a toxic workplace is just not something. Life's short, and a toxic workplace is just not worth staying in uh, for longer than necessary uh, in order to find one where you can actually feel some satisfaction in what you're doing during the day. Yeah, and we're we're seeing a lot more. Certainly over here in the UK, we're seeing a lot more of the um, sort of recruitment narrative and the job finding narrative. As right as both organisations having needing to have a much clearer sense themselves so that they can recruit to fit. Uh, in is is a phrase that we hear a lot. This, uh, but also the job finders, job seekers are spending more time trying to identify organizations that fit better with their personal values, which kind of leads me to question, what what happens when you work for an organization and the ways of behaving that you're being asked to do go against your own personal values? What, what does that do to you? What is What happens to the organization when their employees are consistently being expected to uh, behave in ways that are against their personal values, or indeed the organization itself is behaving in ways that conflicts with the employee's personal values? Um, yeah. Well, um, so I'll give you a quick story um, that I use in the book that 
is a, just a typical example in a professional setting of someone uh, finding themselves in such an organization. Uh, so a lawyer, a law firm, uh, in small law firm in the United States, and uh, the lawyer that was working there realized uh, by some accident that they were uh, overbilling the clients for the work they were doing. They knew they'd work 20 minutes in a day and the billing partner had billed them for eight hours that day. So uh, then they checked and sure enough, there was systematic overbilling, uh, not just to this client, but to several clients. So the person did what you would expect them to do. They went to uh, the billing partner and said, hey, I understand, you know, I, I actually would like to just question, um, uh, I have a question for you. Uh, I only work 20 minutes on this day, but the client got a bill for eight hours. Uh, was there a mistake? I mean, is there, uh, you know, could maybe we could just talk about this. And the billing partner made some cock and bull story about, well, you know, there's some people we don't bill for, we do bill for, and, you know, on average, it all works out. And, and uh, the, the lawyer with his concern said, well, you know, could we do better? Uh, you know, maybe we could, uh, you know, be a little more precise about the billing. And the partner went, no, no, you know, don't worry about it. I've, it's not really your concern, my concern, you know, just uh, go on about your business. So that wasn't satisfactory. So he took it up one more level, went to the senior partner in the firm and said, the billing partner is doing this. Is that part of the way the firm works. And that person said, are you, blow, you know, are you trying to throw so-and-so under the bus? I mean, you know, you know, go back to your, you know, work and let us worry about all this stuff. So he realized he was in a, essentially a corrupt organization, that it was an understanding all the way to the top that they were going to defraud their clients. Um, well, this put him in a tough situation because if he stays there, who is he? He's now complicit in an ongoing fraud against these clients. Now, bill padding may be a common practice in the sense that it's probably the case that it happens more often than we would like, but that doesn't make it one that we want to improve or endorse or be complicit in once we know it's happening. And so he was faced with a tough choice. And in the end, he decided he had to quit. Um, and so he was either quit and be a person of conscience, which is what he was, or stay there and lose his identity as a person who cared about his values. Now, all of us have had jobs where we stayed too long in situations in which made us feel bad about ourselves. I know I've had a couple of those in my career, not in one now for sure, but uh, have in the past. And what happens to your soul when you're working in a place like that? Well, you first get alienated from yourself. So it stops being you're going to work and it just starts being you're going to a job and you're going to try to keep it at arm's length and do the least possible to make sure you get the paycheck. And then you yourself might start cutting a few corners because they deserve to be cheated because they're cheating others. And so that's not your best. Um, you The alienation can gradually grow into being uh, slightly depressed about who you are and what you're doing. And that then affects your productivity. Um, you might start turning to things to deaden your emotions, uh, whether it's alcohol or drugs. Uh, and your relationships are probably suffering. You're becoming more cynical. I mean, this is not a hard to predict pattern of behavior that can come when you get separated from your values at something you spend eight hours to 10 hours a day doing. So I think it's 
you know, it, it, what he did was he quit. He blew the whistle on the firm to the regulators. They did an investigation. They sanctioned the firm and, uh, and disbarred a couple of the lawyers. And he went on to find a job at a less, lesser paying job at a different law firm, but a much more satisfying and fulfilling way to spend his professional life. Yeah. And that, that experience of people, maybe not to the same extent, but that experience of people the moment that you have clarity that something is that is really you're deeply uncomfortable about you, you I think you described it at the beginning as um, he was in a really difficult position and there is a there is a discomfort instantly right there is a there is a discomfort that this this environment is not the way that I am comfortable being complicit in which is yeah tough. well there's two there's two levels of the discomfort one is you know your values aren't being implemented and and that makes you uncomfortable as a matter of conscience. And the other is you may have to engage in some sort of personal conflict or confrontation or difficult conversation in order to try to fix it. And that's an independent source of discomfort for a lot of people. Uh, They don't feel uh, all that excited about taking this issue (laughs) to someone else and trying to work it out. So, um, So actually in the book, I try to have not only, you know, material about values, but also about conflict management and how to be constructive in the same way that you might have uh, conflict management problems because of personalities. Someone's a bully or someone is uh, not a good listener or they're not paying attention to your input and you need to talk to them about it. Um, As if it comes to some issue that relates to honesty or transparency or, um, or customer, uh, you know, excellence in terms of of what the what the value proposition is for your customers uh just some sort of deceit so a lot of these conflicts are just conflicts and part of your skill is managing conflict effectively yeah and you've mentioned you've mentioned that um a few times around values and um james and i talk a fair bit about values when we're when we're uh, looking at other areas as well but it'd be really helpful to understand when you talk about core values, what, what kind of things are you speaking about and how can people be really clear what their own values are? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. I think, you know, values are, a, you know, infinite number. Uh, they range from spiritual to professional. In my research, I kind of came up with a list of five value areas that seem to be the most uh, hot button ones when it comes to these conflicts at work. Uh, and I made an acronym out of it to make it easier to remember. The acronym is CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T. Uh, C stands for compassion-related values. That's That goes to like, um, if you're in a hospital, patient safety is a compassionate value. Um, uh, uh, well-being uh, issues at work when people are being overstressed and um, and and their mental well-being is at risk is a compassion value. So uh, the victims of of, of uh, injuries, whether they're mental or physical or emotional, uh, are compassion values. So there's the C. The R is respect. So those come to that personal dignity part where you're disrespected just because of your gender or because of your race. And uh, everyone's entitled to equal respect. So when someone's violating respect values, that's usually the manifestation of it. Or it could be age. Um, the A is accountability. So these are values where you see someone getting away with something because they're 
the CEO's, you know, pet project or because they're a relative of somebody and they're not being held accountable the same way everybody else is. And the, the morale in the firm will go down very strongly when accountability is not being observed. So accountability values, uh, fair, uh, F is for fairness and justice. Uh, so same pay for same work, uh, all the different issues. Who gets to have the weekend off? How do we take turns? How do we share the load? And values of fairness are, are critical uh, in a workplace. And there are values that most people uh, will recognize when they're violated. And then the T stands for truth. So these are when people are uh, lying, deceiving, uh, making misrepresentations to customers, clients, uh, to fellow employees, uh, whether when the, perhaps the boss is misrepresenting things to the employees. And so values of truth can be incredibly important uh, as matters that need to be spoken about. So those are the five areas that I think cause the most conflict at work. That's brilliant. Thank you. And that's a really helpful way of thinking about and um, maybe reflecting for people reflecting on their own. What um, When people are in that moment of conflict and they're, they're, they're very clear on what, what their own personal values are and they can see something, what are there any practical ways that they can go about thinking about, right, what can I do here that allows me to stay behaving in line with my values even when you know I'm being challenged to behave differently? Sure. I, uh, you know, that I think is this sort of rubber hits the road challenge. In fact, the book was motivated by a student uh, who told the story in class and a client had put his hand up her, up her dress at a dinner and she was smart enough to know that she wasn't going to put up with that. Uh, but it was a very important client and there were about 10 people at the table in this round table. So she got up and she walked, went to the bathroom and came back and, and tried to break the mood. And then the guy did it again. So she then she found the next, she got his hand off her and then got up and changed seats with another person sitting on the opposite side of the table. And so she managed it. But her question to me was, what should I have done after that? Uh, and that's when I went, holy smoke, there's really no book for that, is there? Um, so, so I think the first thing you do when you know that the first thing you do is you ask, what would a person of conscience do in this situation? Uh, and that then sort of lays the problem out because, um, because it's, you know, you've got a matter of values, uh, and you are committed to being a person of conscience. So, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, what should you do? Should you take action on it? Should you try to fix it or rectify it? If the answer is yes, then, um, then I think the first thing you do is you have to find somebody else to talk to. Uh, I, in the book, I have a chapter called the power of two and all the research on, on, um, social conformity and rationalizations and the pressure of authority all reveal that when a person is not having to act alone, when they're not isolated, when they can find one trusted partner to talk to, the odds of something useful happening and the courage of the person to persist and speak up goes up astronomically. So it may be in the beginning, it's someone at home that you talk to it. You verbalize about it. You ask for advice on, uh, you know, am I dreaming about this? Is this something that I'm making up or is this something that is real? You get feedback. Then finding someone in your social network at work who you can trust and speak with. Uh, to start brainstorming what to do. Now, what to do 
Maybe the next step is um, many firms have mentor systems, and there's at least one person more senior that you could air this with and get advice from about how to manage the politics of this situation so that you don't unnecessarily cause more conflict than necessary, but still fix the problem. Uh, could just be as simple as uh, getting reassigned. Uh, maybe it's just a thing between you and this person, and they're not actually like a sexual predator, but they, they seem to have this thing for you. So, so you just, you know, get reassigned so you don't work for them anymore. Uh, that's the simple way out. Uh, but once you start getting some advice, then you start getting a map for what the social network looks like, who has influence on who, and who might be able to bring the right pressure to bear to correct the behavior in an effective way. Um, and then you start thinking about strategy. So uh, organizational politics is uh, sort of uh, the way most organizations operate. I mean, politics is just the art of appearances. It's I, I like to say it's not a question of whether there's going to be politics in an organization or not. It's just whether you're any good at managing them because every organization, including your family, has politics in it. Um, so then, then you start working the system to see how you can form a coalition, uh, bring some pressure to bear to this behavior, to create incentives for them to change, uh, and maybe in the end uh, you fail. You know, uh, but I'll I'll say this: to the extent that you take any action at all to stand up for your values and s try to right the situation, you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to have a chance of having things get better in the firm and creating a positive work environment, not just for you, but for the next victim down the road for this person, whoever they are. Uh, you have a chance of adding a brick to a corporate culture that'll be healthy for everybody. And, and this is sort of the payoff, you will be seen as a leader for your values. And most organizations that aren't corrupt want leaders with values. Those are the people that are going to bring about the most productivity, the most uh, productivity with uh, energy and imagination. These are healthy workplaces, and they're looking for people who can lead uh, the kind of value-based approach to work that brings out the best of everybody. So, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's good for you to do this just because it's the right thing to do. But it may be very good for the organization that you bring it to their attention, and they'll look to you as someone they can count on as a more effective leader. So it's a lot about politics, but the first step always, power of two. Find someone else to share it with. That's helpful. Thank you. And, and that, that real ability to... to collaborate with somebody else and even just to open up and share some of your thinking whether those can be such a powerful place i mean you described it as um i think exponentially increasing the probability that you'll you'll take action in that circumstance which um which is great um i guess when we're when we're you know faced with this type of stuff when when we're looking at at you know overcoming challenges or facing into some of these ethical dilemmas, we, we do have that option of, I guess, running away a little bit. I mean, that's a slightly sure. majority way to do it, but, but that's something that's there. We, we have then uh, an option where we look to, you know, navigate our way through it and, and challenge it, I guess, a little bit without doing it overtly. And then I guess we've got a chance, uh, a, a third option of, of really speaking up and, I guess, facing into the individual 
um, or of, a, of a collective individuals and, and trying to make them aware and to change that. And I guess some of that feels a little bit like conflict, uh, which is obviously something that, that you focus on. If somebody is thinking about whether to take that risk of speaking up, you spoke about the, the benefits of you know being a values-based leader for your future career and stuff. But if you're really weighing up the, should I speak up about a specific thing? What types of thoughts do you think people hold in that, that space? And, and have you got thoughts on how to decide if it's right for you to speak up? Um, well, first of all, it may not be right for you to speak up because you might be able to find somebody who will do a better job than you will. And so your job is to recruit them to speak up. Uh, uh, may they may have more seniority, more influence, more credibility. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm by no means advocating that everybody ought to speak up themselves all the time. I mean, the salient options when you have one of these things happen, uh, let's say there's a team leader who's sexually harassing a young summer intern. They're not harassing you. They're harassing a summer intern. So now what are your options? Well, first you could look away. So that's the just pretend it's not happening. Second, uh, if it's sort of pervasive and you finally come to the conclusion that there's nothing you can do, this is just a terrible place to work, you can walk away, which you mentioned. So look away, walk away. The third is you can actually creatively try to make the problem go away. And that's when you engage a sort of problem-solving situation where you, um, where you uh, craft a face-saving way to bring this to people's attention and create a new set of norms that make it very unlikely this will happen uh, in the context of uh, someone who's uh, misbehaving with summer interns. You might actually stage a meeting of summer interns and their, uh, the people who are mentoring them and bring sexual harassment uh, discussion to the table uh, in a gentle way, not sexual harassment. You'd say um, something along the lines of best practices for uh, how to manage uh, uh, you know, sexual attraction at work <laughs> and, uh, and get a discussion. And this person's sitting there. And so they're probably beginning to think, uh-oh, uh, you know, something's going on here. Somebody's noticed something. And it could well be that simply airing it the right way in that kind of social setting will make the problem go away. Uh, at the very least, the intern uh, whom you've taken aside and said, uh, we know this is happening. We want to help you. Uh, we're going to stage this meeting as a way of trying to send the message without having to embarrass anybody. So, uh, you know, uh, go with, help us out by uh, maybe uh, you know, just uh, being there for us. Uh, and then the, fob, the final step, the final option is to lead the way for change. And that's when you uh, would take on this situation. You'd probably have to report them to uh, HR or to whatever the reporting system is, having tried to engage them and failed. Uh, and, and, and if the firm doesn't have a strong enough policy on sexual harassment, um, have um, uh, convene a group, uh, go to the firm's lawyer and talk about the need for it. Again, not alone, always with your power of two, uh, in this case, maybe three or four. Chances are that most of the women in the office at the least and half the men will be very eager for this to be solved in the right way. Um, so then you've got the chance to actually go through and create some positive systemic change in the office uh, in a way that sets a new norm and that makes it more into the kind of place that everybody wants to work in. 
So there's, you know, there's these four, look away, walk away, make the problem go away, and lead the way, uh, are, you know, different options to think about. And then ask yourself, am I the right person? Or uh, if I'm not, because I'm too low in the organization, or I'm too quiet of a person, or all the reasons why you might not be the best leader uh, to lead the charge, who is, and then set your sights on uh, recruiting a group of people with the right talents to bring about the change you want to bring about. But I think it all starts with, what are my duties as a person of conscience in this situation? And if the, if the echo comes back, you have a duty to act. Then the rest of it is a set of steps where you engage in a little trial and error, but you manage your way through it. If the answer is you don't have a duty as a person of conscience in this situation, then then you uh, look for some advice to double check that, and then you uh, you know you stand aside. That's helpful. I, I like the the four the four options in there. That that really paints that well. Um, when when an individual maybe finds themselves in a situation where they might want to speak to an individual directly about their behavior, so so they've they've been through, they've you know used the power of two, they've decided they they do have a, a duty of conscience in this situation. They have maybe a message to deliver or um, want to engage in, in a, an effort to influence and change the behavior of another person based on one of these ethical dilemmas. Um, have you got thoughts on on how they might be able to prepare themselves well to, to go into that conversation if they feel they are the right person and how they might be able to lead into it in an effective way? Or would you advise against doing that altogether? Oh, no, I wouldn't advise against that. Everything's, it depends when it comes to this sort of stuff. Uh, I have, most of my career, I've spent researching and teaching um, and training in negotiation and persuasion. Um, I have a book on negotiation that's, you know, 17 languages. It's been a bestseller in different parts of the world over 25 years. So, so this is familiar territory for me. And it's really applying that to this special sensitive situation. I think when you are uh, going to approach someone, um, and, uh, it's a, it's a question of, of values that you have to raise with them. Um, first of all, I think it's, it's very helpful. Uh, to do it, uh, again, not alone. I think when you're going to have a, a sensitive conversation, it's usually helpful to have more than two people in it, especially if the other person's more senior than you. Um, but let's assume that that's not possible in the first round. Uh, then I would simply ask for a meeting to talk about a subject that is um, something that you feel is important, but you need some input on. Um, so it's not, I want to talk to you about your sexual harassment behavior. Uh, and I, or I want to accuse you of dishonesty. Um, you want to go in with an open mind to talk to the person in a way about, and this is really important. You want to share your perceptions of what you see happening, because when you start talking about perceptions, it's very non-aggressive to the other side. They see you talking about something you know something about, which is what's happening in your own head. And that often clears the way for them to share what's happening in their head. And at least some percentage of the time, what you perceive is different than what they perceive in a way that allows you to craft some common ground out of it. You know, I didn't realize, they say, that by using this word, 
I was causing any kind of emotional reaction at all. It was completely unconscious on my part. And I'm genuinely sorry that this uh, made you uncomfortable. And I'd really like to learn how we can talk about things in a way that doesn't make you uncomfortable. So, but by sharing your perception that, you know, the use of this pronoun or whatever it is, um, was something that disturbed you and that uh, that you, you had a reaction to, they get a chance to share their perception that they um, didn't intend it or didn't mean it or didn't even know it had happened. Uh, so that's the good outcome is you find this pool of meaning you can share between you and you create a new understanding of what's going on. And then you can sort of build out a way to work with the person in the future. Um, if they, in fact, are... Uh, ill-motivated, and so you share your perceptions and they attack you for having those perceptions, then I think um, the, the, uh, the next step, again, is not to attack back, but to field it in a kind of Okito sort of way and say, well, let me see if I hear what you're saying correctly. What you're saying is that, um, that I'm the problem and that I should be less sensitive and that uh, and that uh, this is just the way the world is as you perceive it. Have I heard you correctly? So that's a basic tool of active listening where you repeat what you've heard in the way that's actually generous to the other side. So you give them a, a nice frame for what they've said and uh, and then get them to you know agree to it so that you've repeated it well. You're not manipulating them. You're not trying to put words in their mouth. You're actually trying to honestly summarize what they've said. At a certain point, if it's clear that there's just an un irreducible nugget of conflict, they believe that uh, a certain uh, group of people are inferior, uh, and you think that that's a violation of social justice and general humanity, then you have to say, okay, I think I fully understand this, uh, and I have to share with you that I object fundamentally to the premise of how you're approaching this. Uh, and uh, we're either going to have to figure out a way to work together uh, where you don't make these kinds of remarks, uh, or we're going to have to bring somebody else into the picture because I think the firm uh, is at some risk for having someone who's going to be saying this to our customers and to our clients and to our other employees. Uh, and um, so I'd like to know what you think we ought to do. So again, yeah. the, la the last move is give the problem to them and give them a chance to uh, offer some sort of next step before you take one unilaterally. Yeah, and that, that last bit is really powerful, right? Because it's it's where you're, you're, that ability to get complete clarity and confirmation that you have received the information they're sharing correctly and then refute and challenge it if you need to, I think is incredibly powerful. I just want to, I've got one last question that I'm going to sneak in. Okay. Um, and... There will be people listening today, lots of managers um, of teams listening today thinking, okay, well, I think we're, I think we're a pretty, pretty ethical workplace, but I've never really thought about it that much. And I really actually would like my team and the people that work around me to feel they can come to me if they are facing a challenge. What, what would your advice be to them? How can they make themselves uh, available or what can they do to encourage people to bring these kind of challenges to them? 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question because it also has to be credible. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. This is like greenwashing that we started with. Uh, you know, certain leaders will say, "My door is always open," you know, but as soon as you walk into it, you get chewed out. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I think if you're actually a well-meaning person, you're not just doing this to pretend. Um, I think people uh, respond well to authenticity and to humility, and so being able to speak as a leader uh, from a place of vulnerability yourself, that is, you know, these, 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 it, these issues of values are things we have to work on every day. This is not something where you're a good person or a bad person. These are things where they're complicated. And, and I want to make sure you, my, my team, realize that I, uh, I want this to be an important part of our work. I want us to be proud of not just what we produce, but how we do the work together. And I know sometimes I fail uh, to be as courteous as I should be or to be as uh, respectful uh, of the inputs of others. And I welcome your correction on that and your input and feedback. Uh, But I would really like to have an open door policy where if you feel that uh, you need to speak about some sensitive issue related to values or ethics, uh, that you can trust me to be your trusted partner, not to attack anybody else or to uh, take any concrete action against them, but to brainstorm with you about how we can uh, manage the situation and bring it to a successful conclusion that you'll be proud of, I'll be proud of, and that will be useful and and uh, helpful personal development for everybody. So you, you, I think if you come from a place of being a student of this instead of a master of it, uh, everybody wakes up every day and they, we all have impulses that are selfish and we all have impulses that are generous. It's part of the human condition. And I think to the extent you, you can own the fact that you're a human and not uh, a perfect person, uh, others will trust you more. And it's the trust that's actually the secret sauce that allows people to be open with you. But trust comes from being vulnerable. Uh, trust doesn't come from just you know being reliable comes from being someone who is willing to be wrong and to admit it sometimes uh, and to volunteer that. So I, I would I would come at it from that sort of standpoint. Uh, this person of conscience label may be a little much. I mean, that's my favorite term. Uh, certainly a lot better, better than whistleblower. Um, but I think uh, kind of authentic leadership uh, point of view, uh, maybe maybe this. Um, I want to I want to be the leader of a values based team, and I want to be a values based leader. And I want your uh, I want your help uh, to try to create that kind of workplace. Um, you know, let's let's have a discussion about that. That's brilliant. And and you know your point there that this is something that we all work on all the time. I think will resonate with a lot of people. And and being vulnerable in the fact that we are working on this in ourselves is a powerful thing. So I, I think that's um, I think that's really nice. I I do reflect on on my career and think there was space for me to do more of that and for those around me to do more of that as well. So I think that's a a great message. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, wrap us up. I think we've had a great conversation. I just wanted to ask as a last question: How could people learn a little bit more about you, and and where could uh, people get the book? Um, when it's out, it should be out 
uh, about the time that we release this. And also, I know that you do, um, you've done some Coursera courses as well. I wondered if you could share details of those as well. Oh, sure. Uh, well, first of all, um, the book can be found on Amazon. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's published by HarperCollins, big, one of the big five, uh, publishers. So it won't be hard to find. You can go to HarperCollins. You can go to Amazon. Uh, the Conscience Code is the name of the book. Um, I have a website, a personal website, grichardshell.com, all one word, grichardshell, S-H-E-L-L.com. So all my books can be found there. And um, yeah, I had, um, I have a book, I have a, a, the book I wrote just before this is called Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success, based on another course I teach at Wharton. And I created a Coursera class which has gotten tens of thousands of people. It's really been a wonderful uh, experience. That is um, uh, six six weeks, you know, three hours a week. Uh, it's just me sitting in my office talking. There's a lot of self-assessments and a lot of sort of diagnostics you can take to think about your own long-term goals and think about the values that you hold dear and how to implement those in your life to bring about sort of long-term career success. Um, and uh, they can find that just by uh, Googling uh, success. That's the name of the course. Coursera, which is the name of the platform, and Richard Shell. Uh, and, uh, and it's free. Uh, you, there are ways to, uh, Coursera has to make you pay for it, but it's free uh, if you want to take it that way. And um, yeah, I, I actually think that this project about the conscience code is really just a derivative of the success book because to live a successful life, uh, you have to be someone who's at comfort with uh, your own values and your own um, uh, sort of uh, the way you behave every day at work, at home, in your community. Uh, it makes you a whole person. Uh, and so these two topics are intimately related, I think. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say a huge thank you. That was really enjoyable. Um, and I'm going to check out the Coursera course. I'm doing another one at the minute, but when I'm done, I will move on to that one. So a huge thank you for me. All right. Thank you, James and Jane. I really appreciate uh, having me, you're having me on and, uh, and I wish you all the success. Many thanks. That was our conversation with Richard, all about ethical uh, dilemmas and, and conscience and the conscience code. Um, we, we covered a big range of stuff in there, Jane, didn't we, in terms of the ethical challenges people are facing and, and how you uh, understand what your values are and live in line with them and, and what you do if you find that you aren't living in line with them or, or if they're being challenged in the workplace. Do you have anything from that conversation that, that particularly struck you or that you want to reflect on? I think, uh, well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I think the incredibly practical, pragmatic approach and also the, the way that Richard talked about that was, the I think, possibly the first time that I've heard people describe organisations that I actually recognise. I, I feel like quite often when we talk about ethics and when we talk about appropriate behaviour and, you know, values, lots of, I, I feel like a lot of the conversation feels like sometimes people are talking about hypothetical, idealistic organisations that don't exist. Like you'll raise it and it'll all be okay. Or we'll all figure out our values and we'll talk about it and then we'll all be fine. And I feel like what was described there was a much more like realistic situation of people, you know, trying to work out how to manage situations whilst not negatively impacting their own career. Because the reality is that whether we pretend it or not, that's what happens. And I, I particularly liked his point that you you were talking to him at the end about like, okay, so you do want to have that conversation. You've decided it's the appropriate thing. You're gonna, con you know, you're gonna be the, the, the you're gonna have that voice of conscience. 
and you're going to talk to them. And I felt like his his the way he said you should go about that conversation, you know, maintaining control, being direct, sharing your perspective, hearing the other person's perspective. But then crucially, if someone shares their perspective, they're like, no, no, I'm, I'm happy. I'm doubling down. Right. And they're like, yeah, no, I think that's OK. What I've just done. I think that ability to then calmly maintain control of that conversation, play back their own words to them, make sure that you've got that absolute confirmation that's what you heard, and then be able to say, okay, well, I fundamentally disagree with you, and I think we're going to need to bring someone else into this conversation because I don't think what you're saying is appropriate. Um, I, I That felt incredibly powerful to me. Yeah, me too, and, and really helpful. And, you, you know, as you were describing it there, the words that were in my mind to to think about some of this conversation were pragmatic and practical and realistic and all those things. There was a lot of reality, um, as you said, about the, the organizations that are described here. And these are all things we can relate to and we've just got to model our way through them. They're, they're not the idealized organizations we sometimes inhabit when we're thinking about them. Um, I just have a really quick reflection for myself and it, it's the point around the fact that I guess we're all malleable and and we're all you know, striving to understand and live within our own values and, and you know, really bring those to life every day. And that that's okay. Um, you know, we're, we're not, you know, born with perfect values and a perfect ability to live in line with them. And so that constant journey of how do we, how do we understand and maintain uh, our connection with those values, uh, being that ongoing journey in itself is, um, it's quite a powerful thing. So that's all I wanted to reflect on. I, I quite like that. So uh, it's just time to say goodbye. So goodbye from me. Yeah, and it's goodbye from me and have a great week. Hi, it's Jane. I just want to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 